Thank God it's free range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
101.5 UMFM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I am Michael Elves, and kicking things off for us tonight from their new album, Live from Brooklyn Steel. That's the lead-off track, Nocturne, from Wild Nothing. Uh, that's out on Captured Tracks. Came out earlier this weekend. Uh, I guess it's not technically the lead-off track, because the lead-off track is just like a little them tuning their guitars and saying welcome to Brooklyn or live such and such but uh, that's the first song on the record and it's a, a really solid live show I'm not always the biggest fan of live records but I like that one uh, we got a busy show for you tonight lots of new music coming out and uh, we've got an interview that I taped earlier this week as part of the Winnipeg International Writers Festival uh, researcher Sonia Boone and poet Kai Kello uh, both came in and sat down and talked about their respective books, What the Oceans Remember and Magnetic Equator. I'm going to play that interview right around 7 o'clock. Uh, some really interesting talks about uh, place, about memory, uh, about legacy, all, all sorts of stuff. And I invite you to, to listen in around 7 o'clock for that. But before we get to that, we got a lot of new music. Uh, the High Dials are back with a new single called Employment and Enjoyment. We're going to play that first. But then we got Doug Shorts. We played uh, a track from 7-inch in August. And now the EP on Daptone, Casual Encounter, is set to drop. Speaking of EPs, Les Louanges, who uh, had one of my favorite records and one of my votes for the Polaris this year, has a new one on Bon Sound called Expansion Pack. We're going to hear Les, Su- Les Yeux sur le Bel. We got a new song from Brittany Howard of Alabama Shakes on which she really channels Nina Simone at the start. Jebloy Nichols, one of my all-time favorites, is back with the Westwood All-Stars. It's coming out on Compass Records. And then we got the Lifers and Winnie Richards, all right here, right now on 101.5 UMFM. Oh, 
envoyer la note encore payable À guess les vieux mangent à d'autres tables Dans d'autres mains, d'un autre pain Les miettes tombent, cascade séraphin Le film tire à sa fin Fait grandir le Swap, 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 ça brille champagne De toute façon, on a une dalle Je suis ça par le c'est ça, mais c'est pas grave
world without you in it. You make me feel just like this little kid. What's this life like without your spark? You make me feel so.
All right, well, both in town for the Winnipeg International Writers Festival, a.k.a. Thin Air. 
Sonia Boone and Kai Kello, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. It's very nice to be here. So, uh, Kai, your book, a, a book of poetry called Magnetic Equator, uh, that deals with a lot of different places and people within those places. Uh, and Sonia, obviously, yours is like a a story of your own history, but the world's history writ large. Um, and, and you just did a, a session together, and. I'm curious if the two of you, you know, prior to this had thought about like where your, your own works sit within kind of like a larger conversation about, uh, people in place. Um, uh, that's a great question actually, because those two, um, the movement of people and place are really topics that I, that magnetic equator investigates a lot. And I would, situate my work I guess within the kind of Caribbean diasporic writing tradition um, that uh, includes people uh, Canadian writers writers from the States and writers from the Caribbean writers in the UK um, uh, writers like Kwame Dawes uh, Marlene Norbisi Philip uh, Dion Brand um, performers like Lillian Allen Benjamin Zephaniah, um, dub poets, writers, novelists like Kai Miller. Um, and it would be in that tradition, mm -hmm. um, definitely. Right. You do in the acknowledgments, uh, first and foremost, acknowledge Dion as being kind of a champion or, or kind of person who paved the way for you. Yeah, she was an edit. She was the editor. She edited the book. And I've been I've been reading Dion since discovering her on my parents, my mom's bookshelves when I was, you know, in my teens, late teens. Um, and her. Um, work, uh, A Map to the Door of No Return in particular, was a very, very, very um, informative work because in it um, there's this incredible way that one place dissolves into the next. So she might be, um, her car might be stalled on a country road somewhere in Ontario and she's sitting there in her car in winter wondering what to do and she remembers the way her grandmother always had difficulty asking people for help in Trinidad. And suddenly uh, the Ontario countryside in winter dissolves into Trinidad. And that kind of sense of dissolution or a kind of instability of place is always active in the book. So if she's in Trinidad, Trinidad will dissolve into uh, a kind of an attempt to, 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 to identify with different cultural groups from Africa. Um, and there's always a movement in her reflections um, from one place to the next. And that was something that I, I, I really tried to duplicate. And I thought that that was um, the core, the heart and soul, I guess, of the experience of, of, of existing in the Afro-Caribbean diaspora. The dissolution of space. Uh, Sonia, you write about a, a beach near your home where you pick up these rocks and the, essentially like the ocean has carried them and s bashed them up against the shoreline and, and you take them home and they look really pretty when they're wet and dry. They're just kind of blah rocks. But that, you know, th there are forces at work, natural forces and, and historical forces that create these dissolution, dissolution of space just writ large, right? Yep. Like th th this happens. Do you see that as kind of like something that ties the two 
two of you together, your works together? Yeah, and certainly we were... So this particular section of the book is... It is a beach that's about 10 minutes' drive from our house, and a beach that we discovered very soon after we arrived in Newfoundland. And the beach is constantly reshaping itself because of the way the ocean moves, because of the way storms move. So sometimes there are... It's it's not a sandy beach. It's always these tiny beach stones. And these beach stones are... Sometimes they're hills and valleys. Sometimes they're flatter. They, but every time you go, it's different. And every time you hear the waves, the waves, the sound of the waves is also the tinkle of stones constantly hitting each other, right? And thinking about how waters are always in motion and what gets moved with water, how things get moved with water. Um, Kai talked about uh, Dion Brand's map to the door of no return, which absolutely phenomenal in terms of thinking about maps that are also dissolving into themselves mm. in some ways, right? But I, one of the things that struck me was uh, Lisa Lowe's book, The Intimacy of Four Continents, and about how through economic ties, we're never far away from things. And so these, these ba- that what we see as big, giant boundaries between Europe, Africa, South America, East Asia, North America, that we're actually deeply interwoven with one another. And that was certainly something that came out. We were just having a conversation with students earlier, well, uh, in a class earlier today, and that notion that all of that dissolves. And I think water is, for me, water is one of those things that allows those things to dissolve. And that this constant moving currents, things shifting around, which also shifts meaning as well. Right. Your book's called What the Oceans Remember. And I mean, obviously the oceans are figure large, but a body of water, obviously it's, it's the same body of water, but it's changed always, right? I mean, this is kind of the, the water table cycle. And so to me, it spoke to like kind of memory as like, it's always there, but it's constantly like shifting that we process things differently depending on the space we're in, the, like the moment we're in, right? That, uh, you know, I've been studying mindfulness on, on my own and really like the only thing we have is the right now. And, and the past is is entirely filtered through our prism of right now and the future is entirely dependent on what we're feeling right now and in some way that the the history that you talk about is is refracted or reflected through you at the time of the exploration when you're in the archives or in the writing at the point it was you're drawing from your archival research and i think that i mean in some ways that's the nature of history itself which is that when we go to look for, when we go to look to the past, it is to answer questions that we have in the present. Even though we're really trying to pull them out of the past, we're drawn by the urgency of certain issues that matter to us in the right now. So I can see myself going back to those same archival materials in 10 years and pulling a different story out of that because different things would align themselves. There might be similar issues, but they would align themselves in different ways. And I would see different patterns emerge, right? So, um, and with the oceans, to me, because I was thinking a lot about how it is that people move and how they move through space and how they move through time. And my own family history has all been oceanic migrations, right? And some of those were pseudo-voluntary, if you consider indenture as a sort of a pseudo-voluntary migration. And some of them were forced migrations, and some of them were entirely by choice. What happens in those swirling spaces where sometimes these ships were operating at the same time, right next to each other, 
Some people moving by choice, some people moving by force, some people moving halfway somewhere in between. They would see each other on these oceans, and the ocean changes meaning with each of these journeys, right? Um, and it's constantly moving, and those waters are crossing each other all the time. I mean, that conceptually, those are the kinds of things that I was thinking when I was trying to piece together what this story was. Water figures in your book as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in particular, I'm thinking of the Bow River poem that you interlay text over top of uh, a geographic map of a river. Um, what, like, did you have a concept of the role of water in in sort of your own story or in the stories that you were telling in in the book? Like, I, I'm curious about kind of the decision to fuse your words with with this space, with this water. Uh, so there are three visual poems. Um, one is a visual sort of f- um, mapping of language onto uh, a waterfall in Guyana, which is South America, which is called Kaichur Falls. And another one is a mapping of text onto the Bow River in Calgary. And a third one is the mapping of text onto the Essequibo River in um, South America. And we, in Photoshop, we, we kind of laid a passage over a map of that river and then smeared it. Um, and the thought was about language as landscape. And so for me, the water, I guess, is um, is language. And I mean, and that, that goes with the fact that Magnetic Equator is a book of poetry and the material of poetry is language. You're looking at language very intimately and very closely. So... Um, I think a lot about that migration of um, naturally people, but what people bring with them and what their culture is encoded in, aside from food, perhaps, and sound, is is, is language. Um, And the ways in which um, growing up you would hear... um, different registers of speech at different times, the ways, um, you know, inflections of, of uh, Creoles and Patois from the English Caribbean would, would undermine, um, you know, polite Canadian English, the way you would hear um, different accents on the prairie and you would take those home and you would think about those um, uh, kinds of uh, more familiar Canadian accents with um, Caribbean accents. Um, and the ways in which you would carry and take some of those inflections and expressions with you and infuse them into your own language and how that relationship of language is, uh, is also one that is, is shifting and there's a constantly sort of the, the end product of it is never complete. Um, you know, the language is never finished. The relationship between those languages um, and the way they inform one another and the, the different... Um, positions they occupy in the social hierarchy are all always changing and shifting. And for me, that was the water. Um, that was the water. That's what uh, that's what we ride as we migrate. So speaking of positions and shift, like so, then that smearing is that meant to evoke like if you were standing on the shore and the language is kind of like sliding by you that you don't get like a completely fixed picture of it. That's why it's smeared. That's why it's like you know somewhat. Dissolute. Um, I think the question was all. It, it might it might have been simpler. It was just aesthetics. 
okay. it, it just looked cool uh, as it was being smeared. <laughs> and we said, okay, yeah, that looks cool. Um, we'll take that. Gotcha. So when you, you, you write four words that I don't think have ever been written in succession together to start the book. And that is archives are seductive spaces. And uh, <laughs> I, I feel like, I mean, I get it. You, you definitely sell it later on. Uh, but if on on the face of it, it feels like, like the least seductive space. <laughs> um, and you know, honestly, I I was saying to some someone the other day. I said, you know, if the second biggest theme, apart from thinking through belonging and home, the other thing is really the book is a love letter to archives. It's a love letter to the stories that archives can tell you, but also the stories that they can't tell you. Because I think the seduction of the archives is that you really you have a dream that you hope that you can realize in the archives and that the material in the archives is going to reveal the world to you, right? And so you come into the archives with those dreams. But at the same time, the archives exist because other people have had dreams and because they had something to say. And sometimes those things they had to say were not nice things to say, but sometimes they were all their hopes. And we don't know when you see a ship's log and you see the immigration record of an indentured laborer and that name is written there and the age is written there what beyond the name and the age written by the colonial authority what were the hopes and dreams that that person was having right at that point in time what were their frustrations what was their anger what was their rage what was going on and so that's also in the archives it's always bubbling underneath and so when you go into the archives there's this sense of immense possibility um, and so that I think is the seduction and every time you come in at least when I go in I, I'm hoping for that seduction. And sometimes it doesn't come true, right? Sometimes you sit there for hours and hours and hours and hours and nothing comes at you. It just sits there, dead material, and you just think, why am I here? But the seduction is the possibility of stories that, that, that reside there. And those, sometimes those possibilities can be realized and sometimes they can't. And one of the things that I found very frustrating myself personally was the fact that I was dealing with government records that were, didn't care at all about what my ancestors wanted. They didn't care. And so what I found frustrating was trying to weed through all that to try and discern possible stories. And in one case, I come up with seven or eight different possible stories because there is so little there to hold on to. Could this woman have been this or this or this or this? What brought her to this place? And I think that in some ways too is also the seduction of the archive, the multiplicity of possible stories that could be there. I don't know if that so makes sense. the limitations of something yes. like an archive, where obviously very often it's, it's a government or some sort of corporate. Someone with power. So, someone with power <laughs> whose interest in preservation is very like detail-oriented. I mean, it's like account, accountants would love Absolutely. these kind of records. Yep. You still see seduction in that kind of like liminal space? I do because I'm really interested in what gets people to write things down because I don't think it's always only this is my job, right? Because they're, they're writing certain things down in certain ways for a certain purpose. What is it that then gets somebody to say, I'm going to, I want to give this to a, an archival collection to make this available to other people, right? So even when it's super dry, there are still cracks in between. So one example, for example, the immigration records of indentured laborers that came, when you see them, um, they come in and their names have been written already because they were written on the ship. And they have their ages written and they have 
all sorts of things like physical markings on their body, all these bizarre things, plus their color. So some say brown, some say dark brown, etc. But then they have their ages written, and then some of them, that age is crossed out, and at a later time, a different age was put in. So to me, the seduction is in that space between the age that says 27 and the one that's penciled in on top that says 41, because honestly, that's a giant difference. <laughs> so at what grounds was someone listed as 27 when they left India, but they were 41 by the time they arrived in Suriname? Like hmm. in that three month period. It really aged them. <laughs> aged them yeah. They aged themselves quite dramatically. So how is it that that... So that is an opening to me, to mm -hmm. a story. That is an opening to what is the encounter between the colonial authority and that particular individual? What languages were they speaking together? What languages weren't they speaking together? What were they willing to tell? What weren't they willing to tell? Sometimes you see a connection where it says this person is related to this person, but it doesn't look like they're related at all when you look further. So what kinds of strategic allegiances might have been being made? So those kinds of inconsistencies are points of seduction where your entry into it's not as clear-cut even as this particular authority wanted to, to be. So the talk about gaps, Kai, made me think of one specific passage I wanted to ask you about um, because obviously you said, you know, poetry, it's language, but there's also like space and punctuation and, and how language is either displayed on the page or dis disseminated to the listener. And you have a, a piece where it says, you know, people never lauded, landed. People arrived, but people and then there's a blank and then people departed and arrived again and I'm curious about the significance of that that gap um, one of the nice things about writing poetry is that um, you don't have to finish your sentences there's no um, uh, and I'm not saying it glibly uh, but you, you actually you don't have to right um, you can insert blanks and spaces um, you don't have to necessarily um, fulfill all of the demands of plot when it comes to constructing a narrative. Um, you can have, you can very conveniently have timelines overlapping. You don't have to develop character. Um, there can be gaps and inconsistencies, um, and that can become part of the narrative. Um, and those were just some of the, um, the ways I guess of working with the stories that 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 and th that the book is telling and the and and the form of poetry um, uh, sort of using it visually as well to indicate um, places where uh, the thought is unresolved uh, where there is no conclusion to be drawn where there is no trace of perhaps what might have happened to a person um, or um, where somebody might have gone that, uh, but I did want to mention that that comment about the um, the observation in the archive about the the age, the gap in age, I. You know, in that in that discrepancy is like the 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 the, the seed of magic realism, right there. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, and also in what you're saying too, it makes me think of uh, Marlena Basieville's song, of course. Where yes. If you're looking at an archival record that is horrific in its dryness it is this record the, the court record of the insurance case about the zong where uh, over 130 enslaved africans were th thrown overboard because they lacked water and then after there was a court case to claim loss of cargo for insurance monies and the only thing that exists is this court case and marlene or basie phil takes the whole thing apart 
to tell a completely different. And she says there is no telling this story. This story mm. must be told. So how do you tell it differently? And it really takes apart language completely. Yes. To put yeah. to put it together and and really finding again that that space between the letters in some ways to tell a wholly different thing. And what happens in those spaces between words and between um, uh, the spaces that open up the gaps in language? Like what happens between that word people and then the the large tab and then the period and then the next word that appears? What happens in that space? What gets thought? Um, what gets um, elided? What disappears? Um, uh, sometimes you don't know. And it's that's uh, it, it for me. It became important to indicate that, yeah, right. Yeah, that specu- space of speculation where you don't have any idea what's happening. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, as a reader, it creates a tension because it, it the you're you're trying to infer whether you intentionally left something out that you don't either want to address directly or you are creating a space for the reader to like infer what their own read on what's missing is. Uh, I encountered that. Um, many, many years ago in a book by Michael Andace, um, Coming Through Slaughter. Uh, he kind of attempts to reconstruct the history and the story of uh, the jazz trumpet player Buddy Bolden. Uh, and in that book, you have these paragraphs and these long blank, blank uh, stretches on pages. Um, and they sort of come to indicate, you know, the, the, the place where the narrative is unknown um, and where the story is unknown. And that actually becomes a part of the story. So one thing, part of a story, it makes me think of kind of like mechanics and putting something together. And, and I'm curious for both of you, what goes in, I mean, you know, when it comes to sequencing magnetic equator, you know, choosing which poems go where. And, and for you, Sonia, like, you know, you're doing just a litany of, of research and, and all this stuff together and how you decide what the through line of like, the the narrative is as the writer you know how how you take all these like pieces and and try to push them together into some sort of mosaic or you know picture i will say that structure was probably my biggest concern in terms of and i struggled with it for an awfully long time and i it was a case of Printing out various snippets, uh, spreading them out on the floor, rearranging them on the floor, putting sticky papers on the wall, rearranging them on the wall, using markers, arrows, trying different things to see what worked. I had a sense. Uh, I had a sense of where I wanted to get to, but I had to figure out how to get there, and it was a real. It was to me. It was a big tangle. That was because I was also dealing with double timelines: the present, which is a present inflected by my own past, and then the longer past. And trying to figure out how to balance those was, I think, the biggest struggle. Um, and also figuring out what to include and what not to include, because there's a mass of information that um, that's out there, and and what is relevant and what is not as relevant. So I don't know that there's a clean and neat answer, except that I spent a lot of time with markers, sticky paper, <laughs> tape and scissors. <laughs> Tools of the trade. <laughs> yeah, basically that's what I did. I just spent a lot of time moving things around until, oh, wait a sec, suddenly there's clarity at this particular point that there was no clarity at before. You were a musician. Yes. Before before this current career. Yes. Um, 
there's this notion of like like harmonics like like when a, a resonant frequency like you know a note might hover around itself and then find yes that resting spot it, it, is there like a comparative thing? There definitely thing to be made is. With when you're working with archival materials, there definitely is in that period where suddenly, where things are just very dissonant for a while. They don't mm. make sense at all. And then suddenly it comes into focus. And suddenly it's like the harmony works. You're in tune. You're, you know, the, the, the balance is there. The sound is there. And the space is, is resonating around you, right? It's not even just about just this immediate, but suddenly the space around you also opens out. And that certainly. I, you know, yes, musician was my past life, but musician is informs every way that I think in terms of how I occupy space, how I think about space, er, how sound operates. And so for me, certainly the collage that is this text was really is very much similar to a musical, a musical, a, like a, people working together to create music. And what happens in that magic between musicians but also with the audience and the space and suddenly there's that moment where it slides into focus and this it's just amazing when that slides into focus right now kai back to the notion of like sort of structure and and you know shaping something as as the creator and so choosing what goes where the sequencing you know really putting it together as a whole work and not just seeing it as like this poem this poem what what are the kind of like thoughts that go through your head as you're as you're assembling this what it would like do you have like a vision and is it something where like you can feel those like bolts slide into place so it, it unlocks uh, i was fortunate with this book actually because magnetic equator is um so it's a series of i think 10 or 12 long poems um and a couple of visual poems but it's mostly long poems and each um and they alternate. Uh, one long poem will be set in Calgary, and then the next one will be set in Guyana, South America, and they go back and forth. But they also, um, uh, you know, in the Calgary section, for instance, um, Guyana may intrude there, and same thing, the same thing will, or the opposite will happen in the Guyana section. Um, but I knew that I wanted to have these alternating sections between north and south, between um, Calgary and Guyana, and one of the reasons that um, I knew that going into the book and one of the reasons that I knew that that was that 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 would be that 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 feature would stay part of the structure was that um, I was once told by an editor um, a very helpful comment when writing fiction that they, and the comment is there has to be a hierarchy among narratives and that is such an evocative phrase because if you have a hierarchy among narratives then whose narrative and which narrative occupies a superior position in the hierarchy what becomes the dominant narrative and why and what becomes the minor narrative and what are the features of that minor narrative and I wanted to confuse that hierarchy and so to have these two narratives of place um, in which neither one um, is dominant um, and to kind of flatten that hierarchy and erase that dominance and also to use language to in a way that erases any hierarchies in language say between the creoles and patois and queen's english um between um uh you know meaning delivered in a sentence and a visual poem um so that's that's um sense of 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 flattening hierarchies and contesting them 
was a big part of um, creating the structure for this book. Can I just, I just going to say this idea of hierarchies uh, was dealing with government documents is, of course, a very challenging thing when you're trying to pull out the stories of the people who are just listed in them for the purpose of compensation, which is quite horrific. And so figuring out how to not just replicate the master's stories yes. is a challenging thing. And so one of the things that I did do is instead of just saying I was looking at the slave register for Sarah Plantation, which is where some of my ancestors were enslaved, I actually listed every single name in the book so that that so that people could also feel the stumble and the rhythm of seeing all these names written down as a way, again, of disrupting mm -hmm. the power of the colonial record and telling it in a different way, which yeah. I think, again, go back to Nerbezi Philip is the same yes. thing. But there's, there's also, I think, a, for, uh, a, a disruption of, in, of entitlement where, um, you know, you're, earlier you're talking about gaps, like visual gaps in the poems and gaps in the story, and inserting those as a way of disrupting uh, any entitlement on the part of the reader that I have pr purchased this book. I own this narrative now, and I am going to consume it and understand it. And you insert those gaps and those disruptions in order to um, uh, combat that uh, that perspective, which I think is inherited, um, um, is, is is a sense of nobody can you can't someone can't own your narrative or can't own this 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 sense of being and belonging or you know the insertion of self. You have a an image in the book <coughs> in which you're in Middleburg in the archives and you're trying to take photos of it and the shadow. Uh, the light is such that the sh you're casting a shadow onto the thing you're trying to pick, take a picture of. And no matter where you position yourself, you can't get the photo of it without yourself in it. Yeah. And, and I'm curious about, I mean, because that really speaks to, you know, research and uh, a pursuit of archives. Is like, you bring something to the table. It's absolutely. And absolutely for me, that was, because I remember very clearly because this was early on. It was the first archival space I visited in Middleburg. Middleburg is a, a gorgeous town on the southern corner of the Netherlands. Uh, a bunch of it reconstructed after the Second World War because it was bombed out. A lot of it bombed out. But at the same time, a lot of 17th century houses. You also have a history in the, in the buildings themselves. So you have the Dutch East India Company and the West India Company. A lot of their storehouses are there as well. It's all in mm -hmm. the landscape. Uh, but it is one of these places where you go to from North America and go, Ooh, European town, it's got everything in it, right? So you're in this place. It was my first time I was going to the stuff and I was still in my traditional archival mode and I was irritated that I couldn't get a picture. I was irritated that I couldn't be my neutral archival researching self and I was in that stupid picture. I wanted a clear picture, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was really cranky and it was only after that that I was starting to think really about, okay, so who am I in relation to this archival material that's a different me that I am in relation to other archival material? And maybe in some ways I need to be part of this particular archival space, that, that there is a reason why my shadow is in that space and, and why I can't get rid of my shadow. And certainly um, in academic research, there's been a big push to say, don't write in passive voice because then you don't own the argument. Right? You have to write an active voice, which is an important move to say the researcher is integral to the research being produced. Yeah, I think you quote a colleague who says neutral is a stance. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. no such thing. Archives are never neutral. Archives are never neutral because they are not neutral based on, one, who, keep, who has stuff to keep, 
to who creates the collections and what they choose to keep, what gets organized. So um, under whose name are these archives held? Who is the fonds named after? And then three, what the researchers themselves bring into that space. And certainly you notice that in different archival collections, like in, in, in Europe, there's lots of gatekeeping when you go into the archival spaces. In Suriname, anybody can go in and use the National Archives. There's like kids walking, small children. Like, are you kidding me? That would never happen mm-hmm. in a European archive. But in the National Archives of Suriname, the national space where all this stuff is held, you can come in there with your flip-flops and nothing more than an address and, and be in that space, and that would never happen. So the, these notions of hierarchies, how they play out, and archives is never be, they just are never neutral spaces. They can never be. So notions of hierarchy takes me back to something you said, Kai, which was about the intentional like balancing of you know north and south as you know the 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 two halves, the two hemispheres, um, and it, it makes me think of something Sonia talked about too in 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 the book is the hyphenated Canadian, right? The 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 multicultural cultural mosaic Canadian of like Caribbean Canadian, right? Uh, Dutch Canadian uh that it sounds like you are placing the emphasis on the hyphen that that is the point of power or the the balance of of uh, like the 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 leveling of things right that 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 hyphen kind of doesn't look at what's on either side of it but you exist in that hyphen well the hyphen becomes a character in the book actually the hyphen is a it's like a cigarette between the fingers of the character at a certain point and just like you had mentioned in your book, how um, how do we deal with having multiple hyphens? You know, I think you have to continue smoking them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is, you know, like Fred Waugh's Diamond Grill, mm-hmm. where he really looks at the hyphen being for him the doorway between the front side of the, the restaurant his father owned, where in the back everybody's speaking Chinese, in the front everybody's speaking English, and mm-hmm. how he's navigating that hyphen of this space of indeterminacy in that space in between and the power of that space. Yeah. And the hyphen is, 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 is troubling because it, in that space, it inserts something and you focus on the hyphen. Um, and I, th- I think that sometimes it is uh, more interesting to either, either, either overlay what's on either side of that space or just keep them separate with a clear space between them. But um, sometimes the hyphen is, um, it's this deliberate um, keeping of things at a very, very, very careful distance which is the distance of the hyphen. It's almost like it's a unit of measure somehow mm. um, of distance between things. But, um, I mean, you could see it as a bridge too, perhaps. But. Right, yeah. I mean, and this is like completely me bringing what I have to the table, but um, my wife and I purposely chose to keep our own names, but our children have a hyphenated last name. And it's because the two, the, the children are a co-creation and that that hyphen links the two family names onto the, onto these children and so I, I I know obviously there are other ways of looking at the hyphen that everyone who has one brings their own perspective to it I ju- I, I bring a positive uh, approach to that its use or at least I see it in a positive way in some circumstances because of my experience with it but that it, it, I mean this is the thing and and it's both of your books and it's the l- larger story I'm a privileged person well, I don't have to look as intently at that hyphen and, and feel that it's a, a scary thing or it has baggage. Well, the interesting thing is, is that because I was born in England and I have a Canadian passport, when I go to Britain and I pass passport control, they always say, welcome home. 
And now it was an accident that I was born in Britain, right? It's a total accident, but it's welcome home, right? I'm not allowed to have a British passport, so I can't have that hyphen because my father is not British, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's also this notion of the hyphen as a way of navigating the categories other people might want to put you into. So I've been asked before, do you see yourself as black? Do you see yourself as Indo-Canadian? Well, I don't see myself as either of those. I see myself as brown. And that's as much of a category as I would want to place myself into. And in some ways, for me, the hyphen is brown. It is what happens when you swirl Neapolitan ice cream together. You get this sort of brownish color <laughs> that is sort of the pink and the white and the brown all sort of mixed together. And that's that's in some ways, I like dwelling in the hyphen and the incomprehensibility of it. I've gotten to the point of liking it. I didn't like it when I was a kid. Uh-huh. I will be very clear on that. But I've gotten to the point where I like the fact that it is not always legible and the fact that it, it has no clear boundaries for me. I think in some situations the hyphen can be really challenging actually. Um, if you take an expression like Caribbean Canadian, um, on what side would most people perceive the privilege falling? And, um, you know, it, it indicates that Caribbean is something that you perhaps were, which precedes the hyphen. The thing that precedes the hyphen in that context is what you were and you might be to some degree, but where you are and what you really are, the important one that anchors it hyph- the hyphen is the Canadian. Right. So um, I think some ways that it, it, it does construct a hierarchy um, in certain contexts. And that is always um, uh, challenging. And I mean, the, the, the other thing about it is I really like your 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 discussion of the multiple hyphens, multiple hyphenation, because, um, you know, when you think about it, Guyana is um, part of the English Caribbean culturally because it was a British colony. Um, and so it shares a lot culturally with Trinidad and Jamaica and Barbados, but it's still South America. So it's so you're Caribbean, but Guyana is still a separate category. Um, the Caribbean is the region, but Guyana is the specific country, but it's South America. And then there's Afro-South American, Guyanese, Caribbean, Canadian. Um, and I, I, I really like that that notion of the of the of the um, the multiple hyphen. Well, the multiple also automatically will destabilize the hierarchies between a binary uh, I- that are in a binary because mm-hmm. you can no longer just say one was before and one is after. Yeah, you've got so many things at play. The hyphen in a binary is kind of more of an arrow pointing. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. It's mm-hmm. a really interesting way to put it. The yeah, that it's an arrow pointing towards, but just how multiculturalism is imagined in Canada. Yeah, yeah. it's imagined as. You were here, and now you're happier here, in some ways. Like yeah. there's, there's, there is a, a, an assumption of a singular point of origin that you end up then in Canada, where we all become a happy mosaic. Mm-hmm. So, magnetic equator out via McClelland and Stewart, Kai Kello, and Sonia Boone's "What the Oceans Remembers." Wilfred Laurier Press, I believe. Yep. Thank you both for coming in and talking about this. Obviously, there's way more than what we've talked about uh, within the text, so I encourage people to to check them both out. But thank you both for coming in and spending some time to talk about them. Thank you. Thank you, too. And um, thanks for those great questions. It yeah, was a wonderful excellent. interview. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah.